You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. Welcome to this BJSM podcast, and I'm delighted to be with the Chief Medical Advisor for the British Horse Racing Association, and it's Michael Turner. Welcome, Michael. Hello, Graham. You look amazingly like the guy who was just in about the tennis a while ago, but uh, tell us how you got involved in horse racing and is really that part of sports medicine? Yes, it, it's, it's again quite interesting. This has sort of happened by accident. Um, I had been involved in, in the Olympics and um, suddenly uh, through my door when I was consulting came uh, a uh, director uh, of the what was called the Jockey Club in those days. Um, Jockey Club ran racing for 250 years uh, and was the governing body of, of racing in the UK. Um, and he said that they were looking for a, a medical advisor um, and could I help out? Um, and I sort of said, yes, well, I'll come and have a look at what you do um, and then I'll tell you what I think um, and I'll do a three or four month job um, of checking out what arrangements you had. And previously they'd had a full-time medical advisor who had traveled around the country. There are 62 race courses in the UK. Um, at the moment there are 1,400 race meetings or race days, um, as we call them. Um, and there are only two days in the year when racing doesn't take place, which is Christmas Day and Easter Day. So racing is a huge sport. It's the second biggest uh, sport in the UK in terms of economic impact. Uh, we license over 2,000 jockeys a year. Um, and um, I, you know, I, I've now been in charge for 2 million rides which is a is a huge base so i came in by accident i came and did a review of of what medical arrangements were what they might have a look um at in the future um and then they said well would you like to do the job and i said no i didn't want to do it full-time but i would do a part-time job if they had a full-time assistant so they appointed a full-time assistant to run the office um and i did three days a week which i continue to do and we've had a number of changes. Um, the government decided that um, the, the Jockey Club was not a democratically um, elected organization. It was more appropriate for a big sport to have a an independent body. And so we've been through a number of incarnations and the current uh, regulator of all racing is the British Horse Racing Authority. Right. And it's a challenging sport. And obviously we all really respect jockeys for doing what they do. So tell us about the demands on jockeys and their major sports medicine challenges. Um, it's, it's a sport, obviously, that's developed totally outside the remit of the rest of, of sport. Uh, in most other sports, there are world championships or Olympic sports where sports interact with each other. Um, jockeys are self-employed. They don't, it's not a team sport and it's not really considered to be an individual sport. So they arrive at a race course, uh, they ride for a particular owner in one race and they may have different owners. So it, they have developed a culture that is totally different. To, to any other sport. And by and large, there's been very little sports medicine, sports medicine, um, uh, science input um, until relatively recently. Um, there has been a lot of event medicine. So when they turn up on a race course, there are doctors, or have always been doctors on site. Um, uh, but uh, that's not the same as having advice about nutrition. And um, th there's been a culture of, of, of uh, obviously wasting and, and, and saunering to maintain weights um, in racing that is quite different to to any other sport uh, you know a jockey might quite regularly spend you know an hour in a sauna before race riding and, and you wouldn't put Usain Bolt in a sauna for an hour before you popped him out to to, to try and 
run that 100 metres. And in that, you wouldn't actually put the horse in the sauna for an hour before you sent it out to try and win the Gold Cup. So it's a different sort of culture. Um, and there, of course, the horses are travelling at you know, 25 to 40 miles an hour. Uh, jockeys fall off quite regularly. In jump racing, um, they fall every 16 rides. Um, and uh, in flat racing, it's about every 250 rides. And a, and a jockey um, who's trying to earn a living will have 250 or 300 rides a year so and the ones who are champion jockeys will have up to 800 rides so they're falling at 50 times a year um, uh, when you hit the ground um, traveling at 30 or 40 miles an hour um, there's a chance that you're going to break something so we see a huge range of of fractures particularly clavicle fractures upper limb fractures um, we do get the occasional skull fracture but that's been mitigated by and large by by helmets um, and uh, we obviously have you know significant injuries um, to other parts of of uh, body so it's a it's an acute trauma situation rather than a repetitive strain um, and we regularly have concussion we have the highest rates of concussion in any sport in my period of office uh, we have a cohort of 1500 concussions which i've if you like, managed, which is the largest that there's ever gotten. Obviously, we concuss jockeys from the ages of 16 to 60, and there's no other sport where you continue to play. So if you're looking at ice hockey, which has a high rate of concussion, or American football, they've all retired by the time they're 30 or shortly thereafter. My jockeys will still be riding, falling, and banging themselves on the head until they retire in their late 50s. So we have the largest longitudinal study in management of concussion uh, uh, anybody in the, in the world, and we've been doing that since the, uh, the mid 1990s um, and so it's a it's a very interesting sport um, the jockeys are now much more aware of uh, the laws of physics um, uh, and and how you know hydration works and how much uh, you need to, to sweat out to lose a particular amount of weight uh, they have much better access to nutritional information rehab centers is a wonderful centre set up by the Injured Jockeys Fund um, down at Lambourne called Oaksy House, where they now have access to residential rehab, which they never had in the same way before. They have their own doctor who they can phone, who can get give them advice. And uh, I, over the period that I've been, we've sort of upgraded the medical arrangements on race courses. So all the doctors on race courses have to have postgraduate uh, training in, in uh, um, acute trauma management. Uh, we have paramedics on every race course. So there's by and large two doctors and two paramedics on every race course. And Grand National, there'll be eight doctors and a dozen ambulances. So the requirement, my rules in racing, because the BHA is the regulator and therefore makes rules is that any jockey who falls uh, must be attended by a properly trained doctor or paramedic within 60 seconds and since we have videos of every race um, I don't attend every race meeting but I have videos of every race meeting and I can time how quickly the doctors get there if they don't get there in time then there will be you know significant repercussions because the jockeys rely on the fact that they're very unconscious on the ground face down in the mud somebody has to be there within four minutes otherwise they're going to have a significant brain damage so quite interesting lord justice popperwell was set up after a nasty boxing uh, a problem here uh, michael watson suffered irreversible um, uh, brain damage as a result of uh, being knocked out in a professional boxing match and during the course of that inquiry every sport put forward the measures that uh, that, uh, that they had and um, the inquiry said that if michael watson had been a jockey he wouldn't have ended up with the same problems because 
the, the mechanism is there that we know it's going to happen. This is not something that might happen. Um, this is something that is inevitable and therefore you're prepared for people to fall down, be unconscious, um, fracture necks or heads or spines or whatever, and that you have the appropriate trained and, and teams ready to, uh, um, to deal with that. It sounds like things are going well there, Michael, and lots of good systems in place. So congratulations on that. Um, Michael, speaking about fractures, do jockeys suffer osteoporosis? It's quite interesting. There have been a number of studies um, uh, by racing authorities looking at uh, jockeys because by and large flat jockeys tend to be quite diminutive. Uh, and the, the minimum weight here is 110 pounds, which is 50 kilograms. Now, that's not 50 kilograms naked. That's 50 kilograms fully dressed with a saddle and your boots on. Now, I, I don't remember when you were last 50 kilograms, Kim, uh, Karim, but I expect it was a few years ago. And to get you back down there, we'd probably have to remove, you know, a leg, a couple of buttocks and one arm to get you down to, to be a jockey. So um, they are chosen from a very small group of individuals. So though there are more women who meet those criteria, um, there are very small numbers of women, actually, who, who make a living in, in professional race riding. It's maybe if we have 120 flat jockeys licensed there will be like six who are who are, are, are women so the majority are men um, uh, and when they come into the sport um, uh, many of them have lifestyles which are associated with dis dysfunctional eating if you like to call it that because they want to keep their weight down and regular saunas so we've done a, a, a couple of studies uh, looking at uh, bone mineralization and it would appear that um, there is a high risk of, of uh, low bone density in 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 our community now um, following on from that we would presume that that's been a culture for a very long period of time so we would expect to have osteoporosis at the other end so we would be looking at the older jockeys all of whom would be falling over and breaking things and that doesn't seem to be the case so we have not found a huge outbreak of, of osteoporosis amongst the older jockeys um, and we're looking at doing a little bit more information on that and it may be that the st that the standards that your DEXA scanner are set at are actually wrong for the group that we're looking at. In other words, it's more pediatric, if you like to call it that, than, than adult. But it needs more work. Um, the evidence is that they appear to be osteopenic and osteoporotic at, uh, you know, the studies between 16 and 21. Uh, and we're looking at doing a bigger review so that all jockeys coming into racing would have a baseline DEXA and that we would then monitor them and give them appropriate advice so that they uh, do their best to keep their bone mineralization up to speed. And is smoking prevalent? Smoking is, is pretty prevalent, yes. I mean, when I started, the, the, it was 40%. Now, there are not many sports that you would expect 40% of your elite athletes is smoking. I don't think if you go into the England rugby, you know, a changing room, you'd find 40% of them smoking cigarettes. Though, after the tour of New Zealand, I'm not suggesting that they are actually blame-free from uh, uh, vices of all sorts. But um, as I say, smoking is not one of those things that you would expect to see amongst other sports, uh, uh, but it is certainly much more common amongst jockeys because it's used as a weight control mechanism. It presses appetite, um, and, and they think that if they stop smoking, they'll put on weight. And just the last topic, Michael, you've, you've had a, you alluded to it earlier with the concussion and falling off the horses. So you've been a big contributor to the advances in concussion. And so just summarise how jockeys are better off now than they were and how the field's better off in the last 10 years or so in concussion advances, which you've been a big part of the guideline development. 
when I first started, we had a, a structure that is very similar to every other sport. There was fixed penalties for concussions. So if you had a ding, uh, you were off for one day. Um, if you were unconscious for less than a minute, uh, you were off for a, a, a week. And if you were unconscious for more than 60 seconds, you were off for three weeks. So it was one, seven, and 21 days purely based on loss of consciousness. And, of course, there was a lot of argument, especially, you know, I, you know, I was only concussed for 59 seconds, which means I'm only a seven-day as opposed to 61 seconds where I'm three weeks off. So that was very difficult to argue. And it soon became pretty evident that there was very little science behind this. And the jockeys would tell you that there were some times when they had a ding, where they had headaches and they felt miserable for, for weeks afterwards. And there's sometimes when they were unconscious for over a minute, which is considered to be the worst, when they woke up fresh as a daisy and felt absolutely fine. So it was a huge relief to me when um, I was sort of exposed to the international you know, problems of concussion. And, and I went to the first, you know, um, uh, uh, Congress on, on consensus um, in, in concussion, and I was able to introduce a much more rational way of looking at concussion where we, we do neuropsych testing, we do baseline testing on all our jockeys uh, annually, and then they're reviewed afterwards. And the jockeys absolutely understand that. They understand that if you do a test um, uh, and you score five, if you like to call it that, and then after a concussion you're scoring one, you're not comparing with anybody else, you're comparing yourself, you're not up to speed. Um, and by putting in that benchmark um, and by making it much more scientific, um, it, it raised the whole area of, of, of credibility, whereas before they would always try and fool the doctor by lying and um, by changing it so that it became quite evident that we were trying to protect them the idea that they were going back into a high-risk sport. And, you know, we, we have a fatality every 250,000 rides uh, and we have 100,000 rides a year. So it doesn't take a genius to understand that a jockey's life is potentially being lost every two to three years. Now, there are no sports outside the domain of, of um, an animal that weighs half a tonne. 500 kilos that can crush you and kill you, that, that is regularly expecting fatalities to occur. So um, we are, you know, we're in that situation. You know, jockeys um, uh, understand that. Um, but, uh, you know, it's an amazing lifestyle and they do a great job. Thanks, Michael. That's interesting. It sounds like you really have put things in place to make an inherently dangerous sport much, much safer. For people who are involved in other sports, just your general concussion expertise, what would you advise doctors at local communities and parents to be aware of today compared to a few years ago? I think that there's now much greater awareness um, of, of the problems of concussion. And after um, the Zurich con con consensus meeting, um, everybody has a clear protocol to follow and there are easy aids like the SCAT2 um, protocols that you can follow if you are involved in a sport that has a risk of, of concussion. So what you need to do is be aware and you need to educate the people who are the coaches or the referees or is ever in charge of matches that are, we're talking about school level or college level or even club level, that concussion is, is quite common um, and that if a, a, a child or a teenager uh, uh, or even an adult is concussed, by and large, they should not be returning to the, the sport from which they've just been caused to have a concussion. And that if you need a more formalized way um, 
uh, to assess concussion, then the standardized concussion assessment tool, the SCAT-2, is available. It has a series of questions which are very easy to deliver, um, and it's designed so that you don't necessarily have to have a doctor there to be able to diagnose a concussion and deal with it appropriately. The return-to-play issue is quite different, and that needs to be managed by a doctor. But the most important thing is establishing that a particular person has suffered a concussion during the course of their sporting event and that they should be sidelined and suspended before they can come to even more serious uh, injury as a result of it. So lots of information in the public domain, available um, again online. Um, the, the consensus uh, statement from, from Zurich explains exactly what happens and that's the consensus from the IOC, the I the International Ice Hockey Federation, as well as the IRB uh, for rugby um, and uh, um, and FIFA. So this is across all sports. This is the best um, gold standard that you can uh, can roll out, and it's applicable right down the scale to the very bottom. Thanks, Michael. And those resources uh, have links on our website too. So thanks for joining us today. All the best. Thank you very much, Nikram. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.